Today we're going to be examining the personal presence of Jesus in Galilean regions to the north. We're going to do so especially considering his personal identity as well as his preaching ministry. We begin in the city of Cana, where Jesus performed his very first miracles. In locating the biblical Cana, archaeologists have identified two possible places. The first one is Kirbit Cana, and the other is Kefir Cana. We're going to be looking at both. We begin to see Jesus' power over the natural world here in Galilee. The town of Cana is where he worked his first miracle turning the water into wine at the wedding feast of John chapter 2. It was also where he performed his second miracle, healing a nobleman's son in the city of Capernaum, about 20 miles away to the northeast. But Jesus remained in Cana when he performed this healing miracle, demonstrating not only his power over disease and illness, but also his ability to work miracles at a distance. We know that changing the water to wine at the wedding feast is the first miracle that Jesus ever performed, despite the fact that some early Christian writings speak about miracles he allegedly did in his youth. In the early centuries of Christianity, there were some stories that were circulating about Jesus that are nowhere found in the New Testament. And some of those stories are found in different books that were written, one of which is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And in that book, there are stories about Jesus and his boyhood. And in that book, there are some alleged accounts of his performing miracles. Some of those miracles included his taking some clay and fashioning some 12 doves and then causing them to miraculously fly. Uh, there are also stories about maybe his brother James being bitten by a snake and that Jesus healed him in some way. And then there were some stories about Jesus striking some children dead who, who made him mad. Now, those stories really are to be rejected for a lot of reasons. One is, is that they're not consistent with things that we read about in the New Testament. They are also uh, documents that were written after the fact. Many of them date them to about the second or third century AD. And then they also are inconsistent with the character and the nature of Jesus. So for this reason, these claims really have to be dismissed. And as the gospel according to John states, changing the water to wine was Jesus' first miracle or sign. These signs that Jesus performed not only affected the people and the circumstances of the moment, but they also produced a recognition that Jesus was the Son of God. The first city associated with biblical Cana is Kefir Kenna, located about four miles northeast of Nazareth. The tradition identifying it as the site of Cana dates back to the Crusades. Walking through the streets, you can see vendors selling Cana wine. There's a Franciscan church building, which the order acquired in the late 19th century. The Franciscans believe that beneath their church lie the remains of the ancient house at which Jesus changed the water to wine. In fact, the church is said to house one of the original water pots used in the miracle. 
Not far away is a Greek Orthodox church housing two water pots that are claimed to be a part of the original six used by Jesus. However, there is no evidence to support this claim and there are other places in the city that also claim to have the original water pots. Often in these ancient cities we find ourselves confronted with artifacts that date to a later period, sometimes much later, but which are then pressed into service with claims of being the very items that are a part of a biblical account. Throughout church history there have been a number of items that were allegedly able to be traced back to Jesus and the Apostles. Many of these claims can be dismissed outright simply because there isn't enough evidence to make a determination one way or the other. The challenges of substantiating these claims are considerable if not insurmountable. There was a problem with early relic hunters who would try to acquire items with a great deal of zeal but without any kind of scientific or critical analysis. There's also the problem of competing claims when it comes to relics. It's been said, with some exaggeration, that if we were to gather together all the pieces of the one true cross, we would have enough wood to build a bridge. And if we were to gather together all the nails used in the crucifixion of Jesus, we would have enough metal to build a battleship. Cana was also the home of Jesus' apostle, Nathanael, as we're told in John chapter 21. Nathanael was the one who famously asked, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He is often identified with Bartholomew in the New Testament lists of Jesus' apostles. This is why the modern city of Cana houses a church building dedicated to Nathanael. While tradition identifies Kephar Cana as the traditional Cana of Galilee, Recent excavations and archaeological finds have led a number of scholars to consider a different location, Kirbet Cana, which is located just a few miles to the northwest. The remains of this city reveal the presence of what may be an ancient synagogue atop the hill, and in addition coins from the Hasmonean period before the life of Jesus have been found, along with pottery shards bearing Aramaic script, a biblical language that was spoken in first century times. Also, there have been identified wall foundations, cisterns, and even burial sites. The first century Jewish historian Josephus mentions Cana of Galilee as a stronghold and his headquarters for a time during the Jewish-Roman War in the 80s, 60s, and 70s. Certainly this site at Kirbet Cana fits this description better than Kefir Cana, and it's the stronger candidate for the site of Biblical Cana. Not only were the people of northern Israel witness to the power of Jesus, but they also were blessed by his preaching. About 20 miles away from Cana is the so-called Mount of Beatitudes, a serene area located on the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. It was in this region that Jesus was believed to preach his Sermon on the Mount of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. From this area, one could see Capernaum in the distance, a place Jesus frequently visited in his ministry travels. And across the tip of the sea, we can see today's famous Golan Heights. While we're not certain of the exact location where Jesus delivered this sermon, it would take a wide open space like this to accommodate the large crowds that came to hear him. On that particular occasion, he spoke on themes like personal holiness, a dependence upon God, and even how to pray to the Father. His teachings were so broad in scope and remarkable in content 
that the Bible tells us in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus' preaching went right to the heart of where people live. Whether he was in one-on-one -on -one conversation with the woman at the well or with Nicodemus, he went right to where people struggled, right to where their greatest problems or issues were. But at the same time, he could mesmerize crowds of thousands of people with his revolutionary teaching. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount with the famous statements that are known as Beatitudes. The word Beatitude is based on the Latin term Beatus, which means blessed. Jesus commenced his sermon by describing the characteristics of the blessed person. Here near the shore of the Sea of Galilee is the Church of the Beatitudes, an octagonal structure built in 1938. The eight sides are meant to correlate to the eight Beatitudes spoken by Jesus, and the text of the eight are found in Latin in the stained glass windows inside. Finally, Jesus' personal identity was affirmed in the strongest terms, north of the Sea of Galilee in the famous Caesarea Philippi. This town was originally called Panias and was located near a cave called Pan's Grotto. In this particular cave, worshipers would come and offer sacrifices to a wide range of Greek deities. Herod the Great built a temple honoring Caesar Augustus situated just in front of the mouth of this cave. When Herod Philip, Herod the Great's son, took power, he established this city as the capital of his territory and he named it Caesarea also in honor of Augustus. The name Caesarea Philippi distinguishes this Caesarea from the city of the same name on the Mediterranean coast. This name persisted until the Romans put down a Jewish rebellion when the name reverted back to Panias. Today, it is known by the very similar sounding, Banias. Because of the Greek population of this area, Philip allowed many pagan shrines to be built in this precinct. One of the most famous was a small shrine to the Greek god Pan in a grotto or cave carved into the rock face. It is believed that this space may have been used in the Old Testament period as a site for a shrine to Baal. The Greek god Pan was associated with nature and fields, with shepherds and with flocks. It was believed that he was born in one of the caves that surround Caesarea Philippi and that his father was the Greek god Hermes. When Jesus and his apostles came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, it was in this center of idolatrous worship that Jesus asked the famous question, Who do men say that I am? To which Peter responded, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Peter made that statement, he was really affirming something about Jesus and his identity as Savior and Messiah. He was also affirming something about the Father above, that Jesus is the Son of the living God. It was based upon this bedrock truth that Jesus would then make his statement and his promise to build his one true church. As we think of Jesus' work in these three areas, how should his power, his preaching, and his personal identity affect our lives? In John 2, we are told that Jesus' miracle of turning water to wine manifested his glory and caused his disciples to believe in him. God has never asked for individuals to believe in him or in the Son without ample reason to do so. We ought to be encouraged that the Lord expects us to use our minds, 
to examine the evidence provided for our benefit and to believe because of the truths that we see. Christianity is a, is a faith that is a logical and a rational faith uh, because of the evidences that we have from the standpoint that we have eyewitness accounts of the events that took place. When you look at the reliability of scriptures and when you look at the fact that we have fragments and so many manuscripts from the New Testament that date back as early as the early second century, I think you can see that our faith is not based upon some blind leap, it's based upon evidence. The Bible knows nothing of blind faith, as the events at the wedding feast prove. You and I have every reason to know that Jesus is the Son of God sent for our salvation. In fact, John 20 verses 30 and 31 tell us that Jesus performed many miracles and signs, but the ones John recorded are so that readers, just like you and me, can be convinced beyond a doubt of Jesus' identity. In John 20, 30 and 31, John says that he's recorded these particular miracles so that we can believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Lamb of God, the Word that became flesh. He has proven it with miracles, given us evidence on which to base our faith, on which to base our trust that Jesus can deliver the promises that he's made to us. One of the things that we learn from this lesson is just how significant the role was that Jesus played as preacher and teacher. These early audiences should be praised for their willingness to hear the words of the Savior, to allow Him to help them live a godly life and to point them toward heaven. Today, you and I need to be just as willing to let Jesus teach us. We need the words of the Savior to sink deeply into our hearts as He helps us to live and walk the narrow path of life. Finally, Peter's confession should capture our attention. How do we regard Jesus? Just as a good man, an effective teacher? Or is he really the Messiah, the Son of God himself? Without doubt, the New Testament proclaims that he is the Christ and Savior. In the region of Caesarea Philippi, the real truth that offers humanity hope was proclaimed by Jesus' great friend and apostle. This carpenter from Nazareth is the Son of God and Savior of the world. Whenever people ask, as Pilate did, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? The true answer has to be based upon his personal identity. It's because he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is because he is the master preacher and teacher. It is because he used heaven's power to show compassion and blessings to other people. It is because he was willing to go to the cross for all of humanity that Jesus deserves to be loved, to be revered, and to be obeyed as the Master come to lead us to heaven. You are the canyon and I am a crevice. You are the heavens and I am a star. You are the thunder and I am a whisper. Quietly longing to be... You know, it's amazing when you see the paganism in first century Israel. It's amazing when you see the Roman uh, gods and the pagan gods that had been there. And you think about Jesus' teaching occurring not only in the context of Judaism, but also in the context of Roman polytheism and Greek polytheism. And he says, in one of those places where pagan temples are carved right into the mountain, he says to Peter, who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
He says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. He is asserting his authority as God and his singularity, the singularity, the oneness of God, and no other God being in existence. The New Testament shows Jesus as the epitome of what it means to be a preacher. He can talk to individuals. He can go to festive events like the wedding feast. He holds private discussions with his apostles. And yet he can also address thousands of people at the shores of the Sea of Galilee. In every case, it seems as if he recognizes there's a teachable moment and he shares God's word to help those people become the persons that God created them to be. That is what makes him so effective as a preacher. At the same time, the New Testament shows us just how much his world, like our own, needs the gospel. Israel was filled with people who didn't always honor the God of the Bible. I suppose I always thought that Jerusalem and Israel was filled with a consistent set of beliefs. But when we read about Jesus' discussion in Caesarea Philippi, that's just not true. He was in the center of idolatry, and he was still in jurisdictions of Jewish leaders. Their world, I guess, was as diverse as ours, and it needed the gospel just as much as ours does today.